My name is Dominic Hernandez. As Pastor Tim just said, I am a professor of Old Testament at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. This is my family, Gabby and I. Uh, Gabby is a Mexico native, and we have been married for 20 years. We also were blessed with two children. Our oldest son is Yair. He's 11 years old. And our daughter, her name is Yael. Both of those names are from the book of Judges. So if you don't recognize them, please go home and reread the book of Judges. This is a little bit about what I do professionally. As you can see, I'm a local person. I did my undergraduate degree at Westchester University. I'm sure we have a couple of Westchester grads this morning. And uh, and then also lived in New York and uh, and New Jersey. And uh, the PhD that I did was in Israel in the Tel Aviv metropolitan area. You're welcome to stay connected either through the social media that was at the bottom of the page or you can simply take a picture of this, which I think is sort of illegal at this point in the service. You're not supposed to pull your phones out, but you will be forgiven by the person with the microphone if you do that and take a picture of that. That will take you to my website where I have other resources. I trust that you're in Deuteronomy chapter 16 at this point with a finger in Leviticus 23. What do you think of when you think of a self-made man or a self-made woman? You know, self-made man or a self-made woman is a person that's generally understood to be someone who achieves some sort of prominence or success because of his or her own actions. On June 28, 2002, CNBC.com published this article entitled, America's Richest Self-Made Woman Grew Up on a Dairy Farm, Now She's Worth $11.6 Billion. This article features the story of Diane Hendricks stating that, and I quote, she didn't grow up on the inheritance of celebrities or political leaders. Instead, she spent her childhood on a dairy farm in Wisconsin, training a work ethic that eventually helped her create a business empire, close quote. The story goes on to note that Hendricks, quote, has a net worth of $11.6 billion and top Forbes list of America's richest self-made women for the fifth year in, the row, in a row, close quote. Now, Hendricks' journey to, academic, or to economic wealth is really quite impressive, uh, she grew up in a dairy farm, dairy farm as, you, as, you see, as you see here, which taught her diligence from an early age. At the age of 17, she became pregnant. At the age of 21, she went through a divorce, and she found herself a single mother doing odd jobs in order to make ends meet. The mother of seven children, Hendricks eventually built a, a, a company of construction materials with her late husband in 1982, for which she currently serves as the chairwoman and own, owes the majority of her $11.6 billion worth to this business. Now, we look at these stories of these self-made people, and we rightfully recognize and admire the dedication that it takes in order to achieve this type of success. But we also have to be careful when we hear these stories, right? Careful not to think that all aspects of life are or can be self-made. You see, whereas hard work is repeatedly commended throughout the scriptures, there's a lot that goes on around us in our world that that we don't have control over. And, And most importantly, we can't confuse this type of effort in success, the type of effort and success that we see in the world, with the economy of the kingdom of God. You see, in the economy of, uh, in the, of the kingdom of God, there are no self-made children. We don't achieve prominence or success in the family of God because of our own doing. Rather, we are, are included into the family of God. Inclusion into the family of God comes to pass by recognizing who God is, recalling what he has done, and responding to God's goodness and obedience. 
Throughout the history of the people of Israel that we read in the Bible, God gave instructions to the covenant people in order to facilitate them recognizing who he was, recalling what he had done on their behalf, and responding to him, to God, in obedience. We read a portion of those instructions in the text that we're going to focus on today in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 13 to 15, which outlines the instructions for the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths or Sukkot in Hebrew. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 13 to 15 say, You shall keep the Feast of Booths, Sukkot or Tabernacles, some of your Bibles might say, seven days when you have gathered in the produce from the threshing floor and your wine press. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful. Let's pray. We are grateful, God, for the privilege of being able to open your word and as your children to be able to expect to hear from you. And that's our expectation now, Lord, that you would meet all of us individually as a community where we're at and help us put into practice the principles that you, Lord, teach us through your word. Pray that you would do that now, that you would convict individual hearts and guide us as your community, your believing community. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most brilliant components of George Orwell's classic book, 1984, is this uh, this creation of this newspeak language. Now, newspeak was the the language that was spoken by the residents of the totalitarian totalitarian state of Oceania, uh, where Winston Smith, who's the main character of this book, lives. Newspeak is really egregious for the citizens of Oceania because it, it controls the language so as only to relate orthodox party dogma. So by implementing this new speak, speak language, the major political party in 1984 is able to control the thoughts of the people by regulating their language. Now, doublethink is a new speak term that relates the ability to accept contradictory information while at the same time unconsciously ignoring the fact that conflicting data should bring about recognition, recognizing falsehood. So in simple, two contradictory pieces of information can't be correct at the same time. By diluting the inhabitants of Oceania into like mass doublethink, the major political party in 1984 is able to rewrite the narrative of the past and control the memory of the inhabitants of Oceania. Now, unlike the controlling party in 1984, the God of Israel is not at all an advocate of doublethink. God was not and is not into his people viewing him or living in such a way that is inconsistent with the factual past. Israel's relationship to and with God was fundamentally rooted in the truths of their past. An accurate accurate recollection of history has always been key to grasping the relationship between God and God's covenant people. In the context of contemporary believers in the God of the Bible, this includes us remembering who God is, what he has done in our lives to call us out of spiritual slavery and wilderness wandering, providing for all of our needs, all of our spiritual needs, and into fellowship with him. Recognizing God's character and responding to God in obedience has always been based upon past realities of who God has been for his people, of who he's been for us even individually. 
So why is retelling the past such an important aspect of the vitality of God's covenant community? It's like this, all right? God's activity in the past is a demonstration of who God will be for his people in the future. Because of this essential fact, the people of Israel were not at liberty to double think. They were not at liberty to rewrite their past with any claims that didn't match up with their present reality. So sections of the Torah, and when I say Torah, I'm making reference to the first five books of the Bible. Sections of the Torah outline God's strategy to protect Israel from cutting itself off from its past and rewriting history. If the people of Israel were disconnected from the memories of God providing for them and protecting them in events like the Passover, the Exodus, the wilderness wanderings, right? Generations later, they might eventually doubt whether those events actually happened. Or if they were fanciful legends that circulated in their community, you might think, how did that happen? Well, think about it. Fanciful legends that circulate in our community are like Santa Claus, the tooth fairy, If Israel was to forget its past, it would inevitably forget its God. Friends, if we forget our past, if we forget where we came from, we too will inevitably cease to highly regard our God in our lives. And to prevent this from happening, God commanded practices for the community of Israel in the Torah, even before Israel went into the promised land of Israel, that that these these actions were to be carried out in Israel's communal life so that they would to continuously remind them of him, who he was to them, who they were to him, and who they needed to be to one another and to their neighbors. Now you might be thinking, wait a second, Dr. Dom, we are not the people of Israel. No, 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 good, good, yeah, you're right. We aren't wandering in the desert. Yeah, yeah, physically, no, no. We don't need these types of reminders. Hold up. Modern human beings have the same tendency to retell the past in such a way that is personally favorable to their present circumstances. Sometimes we as Christian people separate ourselves from the law of of ancient Israel as if they don't apply to us because, you know, Israel was the original audience. But there's two problems with this. Human nature, first problem is human nature hasn't changed. If people, you know, the principle of of, of consistently reminding ourselves who God is, what God has done, and our responsibility to respond to him is just as applicable now as it's ever been. You know, the second issue is that we can't just disregard large sections of the scriptures. That's It's incongruent with our view of scriptures, right? God speaks through all of the word of God to the church today, and all of the word is ever edifying. So we read these sections on Sukkot. The call to celebrate this particular feast, Sukkot, or tabernacles, and the manner in which this feast was to be carried out. We, as we read this, we recognize that, this was, that the call to celebrate Sukkot was based upon the character of God, how God had provided for his people. And so the appropriate response to these texts as contemporary readers, like texts like Deuteronomy 16, Leviticus 23, which we'll read in a second, and and Numbers 29, the appropriate response for us is to imitate the character of God, which is evident through the feast. Now, there was more than just one feast. The people of Israel needed a couple of reminders, at least seven throughout the year, in order to remind them who God was to them and who they were to God. These feasts are called Moadei Adonai, the appointed time. Some of your Bibles might say, some of your your Bibles might also say, the feasts of the Lord. And this is a list according to Leviticus 23. These appointed times were celebrated throughout the year and they would serve as tangible ways in which Israel would recall their past and, they would, and, and thereby this would, this would be a, a sort of a conscious memory of how God had cared for them in uh, the past. 
They recognize that God would, that God, just as God cared for them in the past, God would care for them in the future, regardless of their present situation or their feelings at that moment, right? We see that especially in the Feast of Tabernacles and Trumpets and the Feast of First Fruits. We see that through these feasts, the people recognized that they were distant from God at times because of the gravity of their sin and demonstrated gratefulness for God's redemption and steadfast love toward them. And we see that especially in the Passover and more, more specifically the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. Now, this is, a, as I said, up on the screen, you have a list of the feasts according to Leviticus 23. If the people were to carry out, properly carry out, genuinely carry out and observe these feasts, neglecting God and accepting a narrative that was contradictory to the realities of their past relationship with God would have been impossible. The feast, this feast of Sukkot that we're talking more specifically about today starts on the 15th of the Hebrew month of Tishrei, which means that it starts on the evening of October 9th this year. And during Sukkot, the people of Israel were commanded to practice an attitude of perpetual gratitude, which was to overflow into the life of the community. All of the, peop all of the people within the community of, the, of, of Israel and uh, abroad were to be careful, especially the vulnerable, just as the uh, Lord had had cared for his people when they were particularly vulnerable as slaves and sojourners in the wilderness without any permanent home. Now, Sukkot shows up in several different sections of the story of the Torah. And, and, and these passages that you see on the screen ultimately provide a holistic picture of what this feast was to look like in the community of Israel. A former colleague of mine by the name of Peter Gentry calls this type of repetition, you see it shows up in three different books, he calls this type of repetition the recursive approach. The recursive approach is this. The, the, the authors of the Hebrew scriptures would sometimes mention a topic and then they would leave the topic, they'd go and they'd talk about something else and then they would come back to the topic. So this Gentry likens this approach to sort of different speakers uh, in a stereo system giving you a surround sound. He says... In the one sense, the music from the left speaker is identical to that of the right, yet in another, it is slightly different, so that the effect is stereo instead of just one-dimensional. Just so, in Hebrew, in Hebrew literature, the ideas presented can be experienced like 3D IMAX movies with Dolby surround sound. They are three-dimensional or fully-orbed ideas. So the Torah speaks of Sukkot in various passages, and in order for us to get a, a fully orbed idea, surround sound, IMAX, of what this feast is about, we need to pay attention to the different sounds coming from de several different speakers in different passages. Besides the Deuteronomy 16 passage, Leviticus 23, verses 33 to 43, serves as another speaker. So I ask you to put your finger in there, turn to Leviticus 23, and we'll read a couple of verses beginning in verse 33. Leviticus 23, verse 33. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, and for seven days is the feast of booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. Now, 
the Lord commanded the people of Israel to live in booths or tabernacles or in Hebrew Sukkot for one week out of the year, which is why this is called the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. Now you can see on the screen, this is how the booths are decorated by our Jewish friends today who, following the traditions linked to these commands, eat their meals inside the sukkah. So you can see there's a table there and some even sleep inside the sukkah, which becomes an extension of the home by, in many, many sukkot, share at least one wall with the permanent dwelling. As we go back to Leviticus 23, and here you can see, that's, there we go, okay. And we go back to Leviticus 23, Moses provides another key element to the feast in verses 40 to 42. Here's what he says, verse 40. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm, trees and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. Notice that the rejoicing in this context is accompanied by the fruit of splendid trees. And we have branches of palm trees and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook. There are four different plants mentioned here, and this verse is the foundation for the tradition, albataminim. Al-bat, you can see here this picture in contemporary Judaism. These four plants that are mentioned in verse 40 are bound together. They're understood to be these four plants more specifically, etrog, lulav, hadas, and arava. And these plants are bound together, and the Jewish people wave these plants every day, except for Shabbat, three times in four different directions, and then up and then down, and they cite the following Blessing, they say, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to take or to wave the lulav. This tradition developed from the biblical command for the people to rejoice in the Lord their God. But the people were wandering in the desert. Why were they given a command to rejoice? While they were wandering in the desert, why is God commanding the people who are in the middle of their wanderings in the desert to celebrate in this manner? It's because God never wanted the people to double think. He never wanted Israel to ever invent anything about their history that was contrary to the facts. Sukkot was to serve as part of the rhythm of Israel, perpetually remembering what God had done for them and how they were to respond. See, God saved the people from slavery. God brought the people across the Red Sea. God protected the people from their would-be enemies. God sustained the people through miraculous provision when they were at their weakest. It was God who established a unique relationship with them as the people would carry out the specific plan of God to bless all of the nations through them, irrespective of their unfaithfulness at times. It was God who did these things. Any other backstory would have been fiction. And fiction without the facts eventually becomes fake news. And Israel may have convinced themselves to eventually believe this counterfeit narrative or fake news. After generations of living in the promised land, the people might have then started to believe that they were self-made. They were able to vanquish their challenges and bring blessing upon themselves because they were strong. They were self-made. They were the self-made people group. No, God would not and does not accept this type of double think. 
for Israel to combine any of this nonsense with their actual blessed existence in the promised land that would have been to accept two contrary principles at the same time. Humankind can't split waters. Humankind can't cause manna to rain down from the sky. Humankind can't bring forth water from rocks in the middle of the Middle Eastern desert. So once Israel gathered all their harvest in at the end of their agricultural year, just as they had experienced the plenty that the Lord had given to them because of God's goodness, they were commanded to leave the comfort of their homes to sacrifice and to, and to rejoice. Now, I mentioned sacrifice. You know, at this point, an additional speaker in Numbers 29 is important in providing a fully orbed surround sound view of, of what's going on in Sukkot. In Numbers 29, we read that Sukkot necessarily incorporated an, an aspect of sacrifice, right? That is the surrendering of possessions as an offering to God. But, but not only that, the people of Israel were commanded to consider what God to do, could do to, for others through them, right? That is, sacrificing was accompanied, sacrificing to God was accompanied by sacrificing for others. Now, this pattern of rejoicing and honoring God was not, is not complete until the esteem for God and recognition of Him is reflected by giving a portion back to God and serving others around them, serving others around us. And this becomes explicitly evident as we return back to, number, to Deuteronomy chapter 16, where we started. So by the time readers of the Torah get to the book of Deuteronomy, the people, at the, the people of Israel are at the end of their wilderness wanderings, right? They're, they're, over, they're looking over into the promised land. They're looking over into Israel from modern-day Jordan, the plains of Moab, just across the Jordan River. And it's at this point that Moses reiterates God's final instructions to them, reminding them that the Lord rescued them from the Egyptians by way of the Red Sea and the Passover and the Exodus events. It was God that brought them to Sinai, right? And God figuratively wed himself to the people of Israel, demonstrating that he always wanted to be in their midst. And not only did God want to dwell with his people, but he also wanted to provide for his people. He promised the people that, that they, he would eventually bring them into a land, a land overflowing with produce. He promised that they would take advantages of, of houses and fields that were left behind by the people that would flee from their presence. But he, but he tells the people and he warns the people that they'll have a greater tendency to forget the unique relationship that they have with him and all that he had done for them once they were no longer in need of urgent assistance. This is exactly what God warns in Deuteronomy, chapter 8, verses 11 to 17, where he says, Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them. And when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna and your fathers did it, that your fathers didn't know, that he might humble you and test you to do good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. And God promised the people 
that entering into Canaan, the promised land, presented a real possibility for them to live in abundance. The land was going to be theirs, right? They were promised shelter and abundance of goods that abounded for them. They, didn't need, they weren't going to need manna to fall from the sky. They didn't need quail to show up, miraculously appear, right? They were going to have everything they needed. Sounds good. Sounds good, right? But what need is there for God when you have everything that you need? Why do you need God when you have everything you need? This question reminds me of a scene of an Israeli TV show that I used to watch called HaChaim Zelo HaKol. Very funny. Life is not everything. In which, that's the name of the, that's the, name of the, the, the title of the show in English in which the main character, his name is Gadi Neumann. He's a secular Israeli man. And he's running really, he's running desperately late for, and he's trying to find a parking spot. He's running really late. And, he, and as, as a result, he, he lifts his hands to the sky as a secular Israeli man. And he says, look, God, if you permit me to find a parking spot, I promise you, God, that I'll follow you. I'll become a religious Jewish person. I, I, you know, I'll keep the commandments. And he opens his eyes from his prayer and a car pulls out of a parking spot right in front of him and, and speeds off in the street. And so the character of the sitcom then turns his head back to the heaven and says, no, 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 God, the deal is off. Don't worry about it. I found a spot. I just took care of the problem. <laughs> Having everything that we need, especially in abundance, provides the opportunity for us, for people, to become lackadaisical in their communion with God. Abundance could have been Israel's greatest blessing, but there's still, uh, there's, an, uh, there's a possibility, there's the opportunity for abundance to be Israel's worst enemy. And so as a result of that, God built rhythms of the people of Israel into the feasts, the longest of which is this Chag Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. Why? So that the people would recognize who he is, remember that God desired to be in their very midst. This was the God that wanted to be in their midst. They would recall the kindness and generosity of the Lord, their God, and his history of provision for them. And they would respond to that goodness. How? The people responded to God's goodness with great joy, which was manifest by way of them reaching out to others around them that were needy. As the people of Israel on the plains of Moab looking into the promised land, Moses provides these final instructions for Sukkot. The final instructions came with a couple of details that I want to point our attention to. Unlike the Leviticus 23 passage, we see in, De in Deuteronomy chapter 16, that there's a unique contribution to this surround sound, right? This, this passage pre presents sort of a, a, a very, we don't only see this in this particular section, this section of the panorama, okay? Here's what we see. God provides the, the, God commands the people to celebrate, not only with their family members here, but also with servants. God says in Deuteronomy 16 specifically, celebrate with the servants. Why the servants? Well, during the Feast of Sukkot, the people were commanded to intentionally create space in which employment rank didn't matter. They're told to, to celebrate with the Levites. Now, the Levites, remember, they didn't have land. They were, their, 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 their lives were dedicated to the service of the Lord in the, in the tabernacle and in the temple. They didn't have an allotment of land. And so when Sukkot came around every year, their brothers and sisters from the community of Israel were to take them in and rejoice along with them for God's provision for the community. The sojourner, see, this is unique here, to Deuteronomy 16. Now, this was a person who dwelt in ancient Israel that was not of Israel. Maybe it was a sojourner that came into the land or someone that was in the land that wasn't part of a tribe. The differences in, between sojourner and Israelite weren't erased, but there was a greater purpose to this feast, that of rejoicing together because of the character of God. And the fatherless and the widow, you see that? 
Now, by mentioning the fatherless and the widow in Deuteronomy 16, through Mo- God, God, through Moses, takes empathy to a whole different level, to another level completely. All of the people that were previously mentioned, the servant, the sojourner, the Levites, yeah, they could have been potentially vulnerable at times, right? They could have lacked necessities at times. But when you mention the fatherless and the widow in this community, the Lord is commanding the people of Israel to care for those people who may not have been able to care for themselves. These people are those who would have had to depend to a certain extent on the benevolence of the community in order for their needs to be met. And God says, Israel, you take care. No, no, no. You rejoice together with these people. And this is the good news of Sukkot. On Sukkot, these these lines of authority between, you know, they're broken between clergy and lay people. They're one. The non-Israelite and the ethnically diverse people are welcome irrespective of their differences. And the dignity of those who are at least potentially, you know, partially, maybe potentially dependent upon the benevolence of the community for their well-being is upheld. True elation of what God has done in the personal lives and the lives of the community must also be expressed through compassion, through consideration, through charity. On Sukkot, we see that the servants are served. The landless are given latitude. The sojourner is sheltered. The fatherless has a family and the widow is unworried about her next meal. On Sukkot, no one in Israel is left behind. And Israel reflects upon the Lord God as they do this. They cannot help but to rejoice in such a way that everyone takes part in the blessing. Sukkot was an occasion for the people to invite those people into the celebration who might not normally have so much to celebrate for or celebrate about. Right? The Levite, the fatherless, the sojourner, the widow, they're all invited into the joyous occasion because it was contingent upon reflecting upon the Lord's goodness and what he had done for his people. Hospitality, especially toward those people who, 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 who were needy, was such an important component of, of, this, of this feast. Just as the booths were symbolic of the people's need to depend on their God for their very existence as a people group, so their generosity was then, their generosity toward others was representative of God's love for them when they were weak, when they were vulnerable, when they were in, in dire need of help. Now, all, all of this. All of the timing of, or that is the timing of all of this, all of these events is quite peculiar here. You see, Sukkot was not just a time in which people were grateful for physical provision and the like, but also provided an occasion for people to consider how God had brought them into communion with them. Let me explain. It's significant that Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is the commemoration that just precedes the Feast of Booth by five days. So the Day of Atonement focuses on the redemption of the people and the symbolism that was intended to represent the forgiveness of sin. It's really a solemn day for all those people that were involved as they, as they reflected upon how they had potentially offended God. They, they broke community with God and one another, and they observed what it took to maintain their communion with God. And then five days later, Israel was to throw the biggest week-long party of the year inviting all people that wouldn't normally have much to celebrate, who they maybe wouldn't even spend time with otherwise. Because there's no better time to celebrate than just after realizing your sins are forgiven. There's no better time to celebrate with those that are different from you than just after practically realizing that every human being is essentially the same before our God, sinful and in need of restoration with the God through the death of a sacrifice. And later in the book of Deuteronomy, we also see that God commanded the law to be read on, on Sukkot. We see that in Deuteronomy 31. 
On Sukkot, the law of God would be read and the people would be reminded of their past with the Lord, their relationship with the Lord, and their future with the Lord. And it's through the reading of the law that the people would be reminded that they naturally strayed from obedience to God, right? But that through obedience to God's word, their sins could be atoned for and they could be reconnected with him. See, God's ancient word continues to be, to continues to call people, continues to call us to remember who we are before our God. We are sinful. We are broken human beings. We are without God in the depths of despair. We are to consider the full relation of uh, the revelation of God's word. And when we consider the full revelation of God's word, we learn that Jesus was sent as the culmination of God desiring to dwell in the midst of the people. We remember that Jesus was sent as the Passover lamb. Jesus was sent to provide for every spiritual need. Jesus was sent to guide us out of our wilderness wanderings into fellowship with the one true God of Israel. And as his people, those of us who have put faith in God through the person and the work of Jesus, those of us who have thereby received God's Holy Spirit are called, we recall the generosity and goodness of our God and respond in a way that is tangibly demonstrable of God's love of us as we react to one another, as we spread that love to one another. And so this season of Sukkot still matters to Christians. We can't just put it away in this section of the Bible where there's a bunch of laws. No, it still matters to Christians because as part of the story of the Torah, it calls us to recall. It calls us modern day readers to establish practices by which we intentionally recall our past and remember what God has done for us as individuals and as his community, right? We as individuals and as the community of God, we are just as prone to double think as the people of Israel were. We're just as prone to think that we made it here because of who we are. We got it like that, right? We got things together on our own. We're self-made man, self-made. No, no, no. By thinking in this manner, the facts of our past do not match up with who we are now. Just like during the time of ancient Israel, the need to establish practices in order to recall is particularly important when facing the factor of abundance. You see, most of us, we have everything that we need. Most of us live lives in abundance. Houses and multiple cars, flat screen TV, hey, running water, lots of food, plumbing. We have everything we need. Abundance is a blessing. And there is no shame in being the recipient of God's goodness. That's not where this is going. But full stomachs and general ease of our contemporary physical lives might be our biggest blessing and our biggest curse. Abundance provides the opportunity for us to become lackadaisical and to forget from where we came. And in some cases, our abundance of physical possessions is used to cover up the fact that we are slowly separating from God, right? We're slowly forgetting who he's been in our lives because we have what we need. But just like God wanted to be in the midst of his covenant people at all times, which is exhibited through Sukkot, so God wants to be the center, the vital portion of our lives and the center, the vital portion of this church community. So we as contemporary believers in the Lord God of Israel, we are to develop habits and rhythms that remind us of who we are, where we have come from, and who the Lord our God has been to us, especially through the provision of Jesus the Messiah. The Lord has rescued us. The Lord has provided for our every need through the person and the work of Jesus the Messiah. Now God has given us the cross as a primary symbol to which we look over and over and over again. And by looking at the cross, we remember God's benevolent character. We now look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for, 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 who for the joy that was set before him endured the 
cross, despising the shame, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So now what, what do we do? Let us, let us also lay aside every weight, even if that's our abundance, our wealth that might be a distraction, and let and the sin which clo- clings so closely, and let us run with endurance that race that is set before us. God has ultimately met us in our weakness and vulnerability and saved us through the work of his son, Jesus. Through Jesus, who came to dwell with humanity, God has tangibly demonstrated his desire to dwell with us at all times. Now, through God, the Holy Spirit, the Lord provides his resources to all who have come to believe in the person and the work of Jesus. So remembering our God, remembering how he has pulled us from the depths of despair and granted us all types of blessings is directly linked with remembering our neighbor, especially those that are in less fortunate situations, right? God's instructions to the people of Israel for the Feast of Sukkot concerning what the community was supposed to look like was rooted in God's character. It was because he had done these things that they were commanded to do other things, that they were commanded to love their community. Now, just think about it. Just think about a time when you were most vulnerable. Maybe it's even right now. When you were most, let me just share briefly about myself, right? I was once fatherless. My father died when I was five years old. Uh, He left my, my mother with four children all under the age of 10. I grew up the son of a widow. We don't have money like that, right? And as a minority person, I sometimes felt like I didn't have a homeland. And sometimes we fell prey to the temptations of the luring world, especially those temptations that tend to suck in low-income fatherless children. That's until the Lord worked, saved, protected, healed, and guided on a better trajectory. Now, how could we ever tell the story of where we're at now without being honest about the work of God in the backstory? And how could we tell that backstory? How could we tell the backstory, our backstory without being moved to help others in similar predicaments? Or we can't. Just think for a moment about your most vulnerable time. When did the great protector come alongside you when you were vulnerable, right? When did the great provider provide for your needs? When did the great healer bring about physical, emotional, or spiritual health in your life? And most notably, when did the great reviver, reviver, reviver bring you to life when you were dead and send you out to make disciples of all nations, teaching them the same character of our God in word and deed? Being grateful for God's love is always manifest by facilitating the betterment of those around us. Always. And so during this season of Sukkot, we just take a moment and ask right now, how are we practically demonstrating God's love and care for us, for for us individually and as a church, by caring for the vulnerable people, the the, the widow, the fatherless, the vulnerable if it's your heart to be used by God in this capacity, we can, we can even pray right now. We're, we'll pray right now, right? That God would move to open doors to make obvious how we can show our love for him by better loving one another. And there isn't a better time to think about this than Sukkot, the time in which God implemented a symbol to remind us of all he had been for his community. And maybe a start, you know, maybe a start to this. I don't know. Maybe, maybe a start to this is by building a sukkah, you know, going intentionally inconveniencing yourself, sacrificing time and money, to symbol, as a, to, to create a symbol to aid in your remembrance. You know, maybe you put a sukkah together, you go to the store, you get woods, you get rope, you put a sukkah together, you get splinters in your hands, if you're anything like me, and by the wood, you know, and blisters as you try to tie the, the rope together to hold the wood together. And as you get splinters and blisters, you recall that God's the keeper of the body who brings about healing. And if the weather turns sour and raindrops start to fall from the sky... We remember that rain waters give life in our symbolic of abundance, the abundant blessing that we get through rain. 
And when your neighbors start to look at you like you're a weirdo, because you're building a wooden shed with rope, remember that the people of Israel were uniquely called out and commanded to do these types of things as a witness to the one true God in an environment that wasn't particularly fond of their theological convictions. And when your sukkah is built and you don't know what to do with it, and it's empty, maybe you invite in people who you would never speak to on another occasion. Maybe you, you invite them to dine with you. Maybe it's someone that speaks a different language than you, or someone that's a, a different socioeconomic status, or maybe someone from an older or younger generation. Look, whether you build a sukkah or not, the point still matters. Sukkot still matters. The Lord has called his people to remember who he is by developing rhythms in our lives that reflect who he is and what he's done. And the purpose of this is to get us to respond to God's goodness. The first step of which is to respond to the gospel of Jesus the Messiah, who is the ultimate consummation of God's presence with humankind. If you would like to talk more about this and what that looks like for you personally, there will be pastors here at the end of the service. Come and talk to the pastors. They'd be happy to talk about what that means for you, what that looks like for you, and provide you with a Bible. Let's pray. Let's pray even right now that the Lord would provide or fortify the habits and rhythms that help us remember and respond to God's goodness. Lord, that's exactly what we pray. Our prayer is that you would help us, Lord, in the discipline of our daily lives to remember who we are and where we came from in our relationship to you, Lord. And we pray for those that may have never taken that step to respond to Jesus, to respond in obedience to the fact that you have called them into a relationship with you through Christ, Lord, that this would be the day in which they do so. Convict, Lord, their heart. Guide your people individually and as a community as to how they can serve you by serving others during this season of Sukkot, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.